Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, and looking at the second article of the Apostles' Creed. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bestel, great to have you back as always, continuing this series, The Catechized Life. And today, as I said, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week, we revisited the separation syndrome. We went back to Genesis 3, verse 15. We saw the Proto-Evangelium, as you set up for us, that first gospel, and began to unpack for us where we find our hope for that separation that we have from God under the curse of sin. And not just from God, but then also all of the other things that you've laid out there for us in the separation syndrome, the psychological separation and ecological and all of those sorts of things. Great episode. Go ahead and take a listen to that and also where we set all that up several episodes ago. But today, as I said, we're going into the second article, which is where you took us as our entry into looking at the Apostles' Creed in the small catechism and large catechism. And we talked about how that was a little bit of a weird entry, maybe for some folks. You would think you would start with the first article, but you set up really well for us why it's good to start and enter into the second article. And today, we're going to continue to unpack that as kind of our entry into talking about this doctrine of the Trinity and what we confess in the Creed. So, Pastor Bestel, with that set up, let's go ahead and take the first line then of the second article. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So Pastor Bessel, go ahead and give us that teaching as we enter into the creed here today. Glad to do so, Sean. As we think about some of the words that Jesus says to his followers, in which he discusses uh, and announces and proclaims, if you will, his own exclusivity. And he says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. He says again, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He says a third time, no one comes unto the Father but by me. With all of those claims of exclusivity, you see that Jesus is really saying to us, if we want to know who God is, we have to first know who Jesus is. And we began that last week by pointing out those two all-important titles in that first line of the second article, that we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, and then we hadn't quite gotten to the phrase, our Lord. So think of those two first titles again, and we'll just zip through them in a few seconds. First, the term Christ, that he is the long-promised Messiah. Of course, the word Messiah is the Hebrew word for the Greek word Christ, same title. The long-promised Messiah, 
as seen from Genesis 3 in that first gospel, that Proto-Evangelium, all the way through the Old Testament, anticipated by all the crowds of the faithful, uh, and even, to be honest, anticipated by crowds of unfaithful. Every now and then we'll hear people claim, well, there were all of these ancient stories of a Messiah coming and a Savior coming and somebody who supposedly rose from the dead. And, and all the ancient religions all have their own versions of that. So Christianity isn't at all unique. It's just another one of those stories. But that just shows that the line of Adam and Eve, even those who fell from the faith, still held on to enough of the understanding that they sort of like when you play that game phone tag, and it goes from one person to another. By the time you get to the end of the line, people have so messed up the original message that it's almost not even recognizable. And yet there are still little elements in there by which you can tell where that original story or quote had come from. Same thing when people point to non-Christian religions and say, look at all these ancient stories about a Messiah who's going to rise from the dead, and what makes Christianity any different from any of these and all of those arguments are actually pointing out that God had given the promise to Adam and Eve, and therefore every generation since has had that promise, has handed it down, sadly, sometimes and many times in very unfaithful ways to come up with unfaithful and fictionalized stories of what is actually true with the Christ. So here we have this great term of Jesus being the Christ, the long-promised Messiah, seen from Genesis 3 all the way through to the gospel accounts. And also we see that Jesus considered himself the fulfillment of it all. We mentioned briefly last week, John 5, Luke 24, passages where Jesus says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. These are they that speak of me. In Luke 24, he's telling his disciples, it says that beginning with Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he explained to them all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. Uh, I didn't get a chance to point out last week the great chapter of Matthew 12, in which Jesus sets up that there are three distinct and important offices in the Old Testament or vocations in the Old Testament, the prophets, the priests, the kings of the Old Testament. Those are sort of the chief vocations that are highlighted in the Old Testament, all with their very specific functions that, for example, the prophet proclaims the word of God and does miracles. The priest serves and intercedes for God's people, and he serves in the temple, offers up sacrifices and prayers. The king, of course, rules and governs and judges. And Jesus, right in Matthew 12, he references each of those, and he says in a concealed reference to himself, something greater is here. So he says that at the beginning of Matthew 12 regarding the temple and the priests of the temple, he says concerning himself, something greater is here. Later on in the chapter, he says the same thing, uses the same exact phrase when he says of the prophet Jonah and the sign of Jonah. He says that there is something greater than that sign here, something greater than the prophets here. And then in the very next verse after that, at the very end of chapter 12, he says that regarding the wisdom of Solomon, something greater is here, namely himself. So prophet, priest, and king of the Old Testament are all fulfilled in Jesus, the one who proclaims a fulfillment in himself, who does miracles in and of himself by his own authority, one who prays on behalf of God's people because he was the one who was able to offer up the perfect sacrifice on behalf of God's people, and one whom we confess 
has all authority in heaven and on earth, and therefore will come again to be our judge. And so prophet, priest, and king, all fulfilled by this Christ. So when we confess in the creed, and I believe in Jesus Christ, that word Christ, even though it's one word that it's become so commonplace among us that people often misinterpret it almost as if it's his last name, that's a title that carries so much weight to it. Then, of course, we also mentioned the term son, son of God, true God, son of Mary, true man, both necessary, uh, necessary to be true God and true man, as we covered in last episode, just as Luther confesses of Jesus in the explanation of the second article, that he is, quote, true God, begotten of the Father from all eternity, true man, born of the Virgin Mary. And then right in that explanation, Luther says that this Jesus is my Lord. And we certainly hear that in the article itself of the Creed. When we say again those famous historic words, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So now we come to this word Lord and what it should properly mean and properly tell us if we uphold it rightly. And we should ask the question of whether or not Jesus should be understood as my Lord, as not only Luther confesses him that way, but certainly before him, Thomas confessed him as Lord in Christ. Peter confessed him as Lord in Christ. All of the faithful of old confessed him as Lord in Christ. And sometimes the modern day skeptic will say, well, that was just his followers making too much of him. Jesus never claimed that for himself. And so it's very important for us to be able to highlight those passages of the Gospels by which Jesus himself is claiming to be Lord, and there's no doubt about it. And I'll explain at the very end why this is a very important apologetic argument to make, but why it's also very comforting for us to, to then be able to confess this in this first line of the second article. So first of all, the apologetic argument, I suppose, or this scriptural argument can be narrowed down to or remembered by three groups of passages. Certainly, there are far more passages and more evidence than just these three, but these are three groups of passages that I always use with my confirmands because they're pretty easy to remember. The first one are the passages that I call the worshiped him passages, that when you look through the Gospels and you look through the New Testament, there are various places in the New Testament where someone other than Jesus is worshipped or the people attempt to worship someone other than Jesus. And both times that someone else denies the worship and says, do not worship me. For example, in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas are worshipped by the uh, local Athenians because they see them do a, a miracle by the power of Christ. And they think, boy, this must be Zeus and Hermes. And so they bow down to worship them. And Paul and Barnabas say, do not worship us. We are just men like you. The angel in the book of Revelation, when John sees all of this vision, he doesn't know what to make of it all. He doesn't know what to do in this grand, majestic reality that he's experienced. And so all he thinks to do is bow down and worship the angel. And the angel says, do not worship me. I am a creature like you. Worship God only. And so it's interesting that when we get to these passages in which Jesus is worshiped, he never refuses the worship. And the three examples of this that I give, uh, just because they're easy to remember, Matthew 2, the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 14, the very middle of Matthew's gospel, and Matthew 28, the very end of Matthew's gospel. And perhaps it's significant that this is in the book of Matthew, because, of course, Matthew writes this as a Jew to the Jews about a Jew, and he says to them, this is your Lord, whether you want to believe it or not. 
this is your Lord. Bow down and worship him. So in Matthew 2, it's the wise men, the magi, who bow down and worship the Christ child when he's in the household with his mother. He does not refuse the worship, and even though he's just a toddler or a baby at the time, his mother does not refuse them worshiping him. Notably, again, they're not worshiping her, they're worshiping him, but she does not refuse it on his behalf, and he does not refuse it. Matthew 14, when Jesus has rescued the disciples from the storms when they're in the boat, and he's calmed the storms. Uh, And there in Matthew 14, it says that when they then were safely again in the boat, that uh, those who were in the boat bowed down and worshipped him. And in Matthew 28, at the very end of the gospel, in a scene that we often depict and we often assume is him getting ready to ascend into heaven, it says that when they met him on the mountain, they bowed down and worshipped him. So that's a very strong suggestion there that Jesus considers himself to be Lord because every time he's worshipped, he does not refuse it like the other faithful in those early days of the church do, the angel or or Paul and Barnabas. The second series of passages would be the I am passages. And these are probably the passages that most of our listeners know really well, because we often hear them in Sunday school days, uh, beginning with Exodus chapter 3, when Moses had approached the burning bush. And of course, it was God speaking to him out of the burning bush. And if you study that account very carefully, one will notice that it wasn't just quote-unquote generically God speaking to him out of the burning bush, but it was actually the pre-incarnate Christ. And he's described in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. And remember, this is the scene where Moses is saying, you know, he's coming up with all of these excuses. Who should I say sent me? Uh, I don't even know who who I should say uh, sent me, so I shouldn't be the one to go down to Egypt and try to rescue your people. And God says out of the burning bush, or the pre-incarnate Christ says out of the burning bush, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. So he gives himself the name I am. And that's a very distinctive grammatical term that can't be mistaken in the scriptures. And so when it shows up again with Jesus applying it to himself in John chapter 8, when he's debating with the Pharisees and the scribes and, and the religious leaders who say, we are children of Abraham. And he says, no, you're children of the devil. And they're debating back and forth. And Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And then they respond, now we know that you have a demon. You're not even 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And that's where Jesus' famous response comes. Before Abraham was, I am. And we can't mistake that he meant to declare himself the great I am there. We can't mistake that because of the response of the Jews. The text says that they picked up stones to throw at him because they specifically knew what he was specifically claiming of himself. Now, you could also include in these great I am passages, even that passage from Matthew 14 that I just mentioned with the worshiped him passages, that passage there, in the English, it's often rendered that Jesus says to them when they're afraid in the boat, he says, take heart, it is I, fear not. Uh, Perhaps that's a fair rendering, but in the Greek, it's take heart, and then there's that phrase again, ego a me is the actual phrase, a very specific grammatical phrase in, in most cases. Take heart, ego a me, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. In the same way, when he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the soldiers say they are looking for Jesus, 
he uses that exact phrase and he says, again, rendered in the English, it is I myself or I am he. But I believe that the Greek is just very specifically, I am. And it says that they all fell back because of what he had said. Well, they didn't fall back out of surprise that someone actually admitted it, that they were Jesus. They fell back because the authority of Christ's word as the great I am. So all of these different accounts in here show that Christ very specifically declares himself to be Lord, to be equal to the Father, to be the great I am. The third set of passages are the my father passages. And when the reader reads these phrases all throughout the Gospels, where Jesus refers to the Father in heaven as being, quote, my father, or in the Greek, ho pater mu, the Jews understood, you do not refer to God as my father, because to refer to someone as father was a DNA reality. Uh, I might have my own father, Dennis Bestel, and of course, Sean Smith has his own father. And that father-son relationship sets you apart and distinct from everyone else in the room who does not share the same father. And so for Jesus to claim God as being my father, that, of course, was blasphemy to the Jews because they said, how dare anyone claim himself equal with God if he's of the same DNA substance as, quote unquote, my father? That's certainly a claim of deity. And so you see in this these series of passages as well, and, and you can look at, for example, the text in John chapter 14 through 16 is usually where I take my confirmation class, and we just take a few moments to read through that. And all of these passages where Jesus is referring to God as my Father over and over and over again, there's just no mistaking it. Now, at the end of the hour last week, I think I mentioned the name C.S. Lewis, and it was C.S. Lewis, I believe, who points out that if Jesus so clearly declares himself to be Lord, then he cannot be what so many people in our society like to claim of him. Uh, I've got extended family, for example, that claims, well, I don't believe that Jesus is God or, or they would say was God. I just believe that he was a good teacher. And I believe it was C.S. Lewis who made this argument, but I use it with my confirmation class. I said, can you imagine me teaching you for two years in confirmation that every week I show up and I teach you and you go home and you say to your parents, yeah, he's a pretty good teacher. And then all of a sudden, one day I show up and I say, class, by the way, I am God. And all of a sudden, the class would have to say, I don't think this guy's a very good teacher anymore. He's obviously messed up in the head or he's lying to us. Uh, whatever the case is, we don't trust him as a good teacher anymore. And yet that's exactly what Jesus claims of himself to those who are following him for those two, three years. And so for cynics in our day to try to simply rationalize away the divine claims of Christ by simply saying he's a good teacher, no good teacher would claim himself to be God when he wasn't. And so it was C.S. Lewis, I believe, who said, you really only have three choices. Either Jesus is a liar because he knows he's not God, but he's trying to pass himself off as God. Or he's a lunatic because he actually thinks he's God when he's not. He's just crazy. Of course, that's what his mother and brothers thought, remember? They thought that he was sort of out of his mind. And they were trying to defend him from hurting his reputation, the family reputation. They were trying to silence him. They thought he was a, a lunatic. Uh, so he's either a liar or a lunatic, 
or he is what he claims to be. He's Lord. And so it is no inconsequential confession when we say, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Yeah, it certainly is no inconsequential confession. Of course, as we say here on the show, the name of the show, Concord Matters. So good for us to have Concord on that, but especially when we consider that this is our salvation. And so I think just for the sake of time, we're going to go ahead and push forward here and address just that as we'll take the rest of the second article of the Creed. And a reminder, I'm not reading the explanation here because Pastor Bestel is giving that to us in his catechesis. But you are certainly welcome to review that yourselves and have it in mind as you listen to Pastor Bestel. I think that'll be fruitful for you. But I'll go ahead and read the rest of the second article of the Creed here. So following, and in Jesus Christ's only Son, our Lord, we pick up, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. All right, thus far the second article. So, Pastor Bessel, as you've already set up for us here, after we identify Jesus as the Christ, our Lord, in the first few words there, the rest of the article we talk about the work of Christ. And, of course, as we set up last week with the solution to the separation syndrome, that It is the work of Christ, as promised all the way back there in Genesis 3, that we find the solution, which is why we're coming into the creed at the second article instead of the first article. So go ahead and begin our discussion here, as of course we'll have to take a break here in a few minutes, but the rest of this episode we're going to be covering this. So go ahead and talk about the work of the Christ for our salvation, as we confess it here in the second article of the creed. Happy to, Sean. This is such a beloved portion of our confessions that we often fail to think about or fail to recognize what we might consider as missing. If you notice what's missing in the second article of the Creed, there's no reference to Jesus' miracles or his teaching. And yet that makes up so much a part of what we hear about in the Gospels. And so one might sort of scratch their head and say, well, why is there no reference to Jesus' miracles and his teaching? And the answer is because that's not why he came. That's not what it means that he's Messiah. That doesn't mean that his miracles and his teaching are important, but it is to say that his teaching and doctrine is grounded in who he is and not in what he can teach you to be for yourself. This is a really important feature of what is true Christianity. So many claims of what is Christian out there try to turn Jesus into the Messiah who came or the Christ who came to teach you how to be a better you. But notice that turns salvation on its head and puts salvation right back at your feet, rather than the reality that Jesus came as the long-promised Christ to do the work of completing salvation and not just teaching about it. And so his teaching and miracles certainly are important, but he is not a self-help guru. He's not a life coach, and he's not Jesus, my best friend. And again, many people think that Christianity is about being saved by Christ's teachings, and that's actually not true. Christianity is actually about being saved by Christ's person, his righteousness, his sacrifice. That is his completed work, and that is how we are saved. 
Now, true, at various times he does highlight the importance of both his preaching and his miracles. At one point, he even seems to put his preaching above his miracles. There's a point in the Gospels when he's healing the townspeople one night, and it says that the whole town comes to the door that night, and he healed all of them after sunset. And then the next morning, early the next morning, they can't find him. He had gone off to pray, and the disciples come to him and say, Lord, everyone's waiting for you. And Jesus says, no, let's go to the other villages that I might preach there also, for that is why I have come. So he does highlight the importance of his preaching, even hints that he's come to preach. But he elsewhere defines what you might call the hierarchy of his purposes even more when he says, for example, a very well-known phrase from Matthew 20, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Certainly, the miracles are always meant to point to his person. Remember, there was that one miracle where the friends of the man wanted to get him near to Jesus. All the crowds had packed into this house that Jesus was in, and it was just packed wall to wall. The entrance was blocked. The friends couldn't get their friend near to Jesus, the lame man on his mat near to Jesus. And so they lowered him down through the roof and lowered him down next to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now, you know, I can almost imagine that that man on the on the mat probably was sort of disappointed at first. That's not why he had been lowered down. That's not why his friends had gone to all that effort. They had gone to all that effort for healing. And Jesus uses it as an opportunity and an example to, again, to use the phrase, and it's my own phrase, to talk about the hierarchy of his purposes, that certainly the miracles are an important part of who he is as Messiah, but they point to him as Messiah. They're not there to fulfill what it means to be Messiah, but rather they're there to show that he is the one fulfilling all of those Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Uh, When John's disciples came to Jesus, when John was in prison, and they came with the question of, are you the Christ or should we expect another? What does Jesus do? But he points them to all the miracles he had done. And he says, tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the poor have good news preached to them. These things point to Jesus as the Messiah, as the long-promised one. And that is their true purpose in the three years of Christ and his ministry. This is actually a very important point for us Christians to remember when we want in modern day, we want the gospel to look like what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record as it was going on when Jesus was on the earth. And we say, gee, how come Christ won't come and heal me of my blindness or of my deafness or of my sicknesses, my cancers, or whatever terminal illness that I have? And sometimes it actually even leads people to despair or maybe even into unbelief because they say, if Jesus could have done it 2,000 years ago, why won't he do it today? Uh, And then they've misinterpreted what salvation looks like. The whole reason that Jesus did that those 2,000 years ago was so that the whole world and all the witnesses might know this indeed is the Christ. And so when he mounts that cross as the Lamb of God who takes upon himself the sin of the world, there can be no doubt. This is indeed the Christ whom God promised from Genesis 3.
And so we think of that preaching, we think of those miracles, Jesus even coming from the beginning of his ministry saying, repent, the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand, or saying regarding himself, when he reads the prophets, reads the prophet Isaiah in the Nazareth synagogue, he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, speaking of himself. So Jesus points to himself, but he glories in his crucifixion as the true work. And that's why that the incarnation of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection and ascension of Christ, that's why this is central to the second article and not the preaching and the teaching, because Christ knows and therefore glories in this reality of being the Christ crucified that God had always promised from Genesis 3, so that Jesus himself even says in John chapter 12, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then John comments, this was to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He gloried in that reality of drawing people unto himself in his crucifixion. This is how God had promised to save the world. And then by all means, all of his teachings show you how that salvation defines your daily life reunited with God and therefore with faith in God and fervent love toward one another. It's all there in his teaching, but it is all fulfilled, if you will, or it's all given its meaning in Jesus' identity as Christ and Son and Lord. I like how you've highlighted here that Jesus is the Christ that is certainly the focus of what we confess there in the second article of the creed, the high point of the creed here, and that's his work. He's not just a good teacher, and so we're going to continue unpacking that and how we see that unfold then as we see it here in what we confess here in the second article of the creed in that work of Christ. So we're going to take a break here. That's our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and we'll be back with you just right after this. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me. Pastor Timothy Apple on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the Word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Mark Bestall, our catechist for this series, The Catechized Life. And today, looking at and unpacking the second article, and just before the break, Pastor Bestall, you were unpacking that work of Christ, which is centered on him as the Christ doing the work of our salvation, and that all of his teachings weren't just to be a good teacher and to provide an example for us how to live a good life, but to give to us the good life in that work of his salvation and his teachings all center on that as well. So go ahead and continue unpacking that there as we look at this second article here as focused on the Christ and his work for our salvation. Sure. When we look at the second article of the creed, we talk about the work of Jesus. As we've already hinted at the bottom of the last hour, his work is really wrapped up in his incarnation, his suffering and death 
and then as the first fruits of all the benefits of that, his resurrection and ascension, and then the glory when he comes again to be our judge. And so it's interesting to be able to study the second article as sort of a step-by-step process of seeing how he carries out his work. We often refer to it as the steps of humiliation and exaltation. We'll get into that in a minute. Uh, And it starts with the reality of him becoming incarnate. And we shouldn't jump past this too quickly because the incarnation is central to the scriptures. It is central to human history. The idea and this mind-boggling concept that God would himself become man, not that God would send a good teacher on his behalf or a good messenger on his behalf, or even that God would send, and understand me correctly here, even that God would send his son as if his son was a different substance than God, right? Less than God, as some people mistakenly think that the phrase the son of God is not a phrase of equality, but sort of a less than phrase. And yet everything about the incarnation should be upheld by the Christian in awesome wonder and mystery that this incarnate God has done this work of salvation for us. And all of salvation depends upon him becoming flesh and and actually carrying this out, not only in the flesh, but that also means in human history, which is why it's so beautiful to always read on Christmas Eve, those famous words of Luke chapter two and how he roots it right in the historical context of what was going on under Caesar Augustus and and when Quirinius was governor of Syria and those different historical details. So the incarnation is something that we should always confess and try to capture in our teaching and in our hearing. That Christmas Eve is really not about how beautiful the night was. It's not about the stars in the sky. It's not even about the angels. It's about the fact that God has become man and that now that gets to be reported to the whole world. That yes, here is this God-man in a manger. Talk about going from the divine majesty of the eternal realm of heaven and the central throne of heaven into this humble form of a servant, as St. Paul says, that Jesus takes on the humble form of a servant that he might save us. And so in this fullness of time, Galatians chapter 4, in the fullness of time, at just the right moment in human history, at the culmination of all of God's Old Testament promises, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law. Notice, again, the reference to the incarnation. It's not just in the Apostles' Creed, but also in that creed that we don't often use all that much in the church here. We use it every festival of the Holy Trinity, that Athanasian creed that confesses the Holy Trinity. Think of how that confession really wrestles with trying to properly comprehend and grasp how to articulate this divine majesty of the Holy Trinity. And we'll get into that uh, here later in this episode and next week as well. But how do we grasp this Holy Trinity? And then halfway through, it uses these interesting words. It says, Whoever desires to be saved must think thus about the Trinity, but it is also necessary for everlasting salvation that one faithfully believe the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it goes on and talks about that which is really the heart of each and every one of the creeds, which is that the incarnate God, man, that God in the flesh does this 
work of humbling himself to the point of death, even death upon a cross, and then he is exalted to his rightful place as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so those are the steps that you also see in the Apostles' Creed, beginning with the fact that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, buried. And I actually, and I think most pastors probably do, we actually draw these steps and write each of those key verbs on the line, right? That he was conceived, that he was born, that he suffered, that he was crucified, died, buried. We write each of those terms on those descending steps to show what the second person of the Trinity willingly submitted to out of joy for the Father's goodwill of salvation for that fallen world that he had created and now desired to redeem and save. And so we see that first half of the second article being one of the steps of humiliation. We might even speak of it as the willing humiliation of the divine nature of the Christ, because certainly true man is not in any way, quote unquote, humiliated by this. This is a a natural, I suppose, one would argue to what humanity is, conceived and born at least, Um, but certainly to his divine nature, that he would humble himself to this. And, And when we say the steps of humiliation, I suppose I should make the point, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was ashamed of it. Uh, Some Christians, I think, make the mistake of thinking that when Christ ascended into heaven, he tried to get rid of all the things he was ashamed of, almost to the point of getting rid of his humanity. But again, it was his great joy to be this Christ, this one sent by the Father. And so he is not ashamed of his humanity. We don't want to speak of the steps of humiliation as if Jesus is ashamed of this but rather he bears the reproach of the world. He's not ashamed by it. The world's ashamed by it. Think of how many people out there believe that it's an issue of shame to believe in a God who would dare allow himself to roll up his sleeves and get dirty among the messiness of a broken world. And yet that's exactly what Christ did, is that he did. He rolled up his sleeves. He allowed himself to get dirty and bear the sins and bear the dirt of the whole world the Lamb of God who takes upon himself the sin and the weight of the world. And so those are the, that's the first half of the steps of the humiliation and exaltation. But then the second half is that he is exalted, exalted as he rightfully deserves to be as the one who has conquered in the fight. And the first step in that exaltation is actually his descent into hell. It says that he suffered, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended into hell. And most people, I think, assume that that's almost a continuation of the humiliation. How could it possibly not be humiliating to go into hell? But as we've mentioned in previous episodes, this was a glorious moment. If we understand the word gospel correctly, that as he goes into the devil's backyard and declares, I have won, Genesis 3.15 is no longer a yet-to-be-fulfilled promise. Genesis 3.15 is now a fulfilled promise. I have won the victory. And that's exactly what Jesus got to do by declaring that gospel in the depths of hell, even before rising again from the dead and having it declared to the whole world. And so the descent into hell actually begins his exaltation. It's not a continued part of suffering. He cried from the cross, it is finished. Rather, it is the first moments of his exaltation and his glory. 
And then, of course, he rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to be our judge. And so this is the exaltation of the Christ. But again, we might even parse a little bit that this is really the exaltation of the incarnate reality of the Christ. No one takes away the glory of God. Uh, And so as Jesus himself says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I take it back up again. And so when he's exalted, that doesn't mean that the world is giving him the due honor so that he can now be so thankful to the world that his credibility has been restored, or even that the Father gives him due honor, or that he has to somehow take it back by force. But as true God, he always has this honor and this exaltation. But as we sometimes hearken on in the Festival of the Ascension, that true man would get to share in this reality is glorious, that true man would share in the declaration of victory even in the depths of hell, that true man would share in the resurrection, that true man would ascend into the heavenly places so that the one who sits at the right hand of the Father is not only our Lord but also our brother. That is incredible to try and even ponder and think about. Uh, It's just mind-boggling. In fact, uh, I think at our congregation, and here's where I would encourage every listener out there to encourage your pastors, really cherish that festival of the Ascension. And I think at our congregation in the past five years, the folks here have really learned and really taken to heart that the Ascension is perhaps even more glorious, and I know it sounds heretical almost, perhaps even more glorious than the resurrection. I mean, it is just amazing and mind-boggling to think that here the resurrected Christ takes his rightful place as our brother. In fact, Jesus on the day of his resurrection is already looking forward to his ascension. Do not touch me. I have not yet ascended to my father. Uh, There is something to be said about the ascension being this height of Christ's glory, even dare I say, almost even by his own words, even more than resurrection morning is. So that whole second half of the steps of humiliation and exaltation is glorious. And so here you have the Christ who allowed himself to be humbled, and then the Christ who again is exalted. And of course, we get these this wording from the scriptures themselves. When Paul writes of this in Philippians chapter 2, he writes about Christ who humbled himself in the form of a servant that he might be then exalted in the heavenly places. So it's a beautiful section, not only of the Apostles' Creed, but certainly of the Christian confession in general and of the small catechism. The heart of our confession is the person and work of Jesus. All theology is Christology, and as it is, what a beautifully comforting and glorious confession it is. And so then as we've been brought to this point of Christ in his glory in the ascension, and I'm with you, I, I've restored the practice of having an Ascension Day service in my dual parish and have really encouraged that, that I I don't think it's heretical to say it's almost more than the resurrection. I would actually just kind of maybe even phrase it a different way myself personally, which is that it's all a connected event and Christ himself connects these together. That That is the continuation of what he is to do for our salvation. And that's why it's all wrapped up here in the second article. And so beautiful teaching on that. And as he ascends back up then into heaven and is at the right hand of God the Father, of course, as you've laid out for us as well, many times Jesus points to he and the Father being one. He claims him as his Father, as you've already pointed out for us as well. 
And so that also helps us understand that in his teaching, he himself reveals the Trinity to us. And again, last week we said why we enter in at the second article and we set that up. But we're going to go back and next week get the first and third articles in this. But as we transition into that, then go ahead then and take us from the second article to the Trinity and how Christ and his work of salvation reveals that for us. Sure. When we think of Christ and his work and how that work is revealed to us, many people by default, I think, go to one of those most well-known and well-loved passages, John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, When I teach that passage to the kids, I teach them that they really need to understand that the word so there, God so loved the world, really is actually a word that points back to verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, in this way must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then in verse 16, God in this way loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son. So the lifting up of Jesus on the cross does open up to us not only the work of Jesus, but it opens up to us the fact that we have a God who loves us. And that's a very comforting thing for us to get into, that it's not just that Jesus loves us and saves us from an angry, judgmental, triune God, but rather that Jesus opens up to us in his saving work that the Holy Trinity, the majestic, indescribable, incomprehensible God, that Holy Trinity is a God who loves us. And so first, as we think about the Holy Trinity, and as Jesus begins to show us clearly who this triune God is, first, we have to always defend that the concept of the Holy Trinity is very biblical, even if you're never going to find the word Trinity in the Bible. Uh, And we do have to point this out to our confirmands, to adult catechumens, anyone who perhaps hasn't had the opportunity to think about this yet, that the Bible is written in Hebrew and Greek and then translated into English. And the word Trinity is a Latin word. And so, of course, it's not going to be there. But that doesn't mean that the concept isn't there. So one of the places that I think we should start is the reality that this is a biblical concept and it is not a uniquely New Testament concept. That's a big point because there are a lot of false religions out there that try to claim that the Old Testament never talks about this idea of the Holy Trinity. And it's really an idea that's introduced by followers in the New Testament who are setting up a new and different religion. That's not true at all. The concept of the Holy Trinity is there from the very get-go, from the very first sentence of Scripture, we see that God has this plurality in the oneness, is often how we refer to it, that is almost impossible to describe. And yet, it's there. Uh, Just to give a, a little Hebrew lesson, the number in the verb, whether it's singular or plural, always gets to dictate the noun. And so in Genesis chapter 1, in a way that the English does not capture, the words in the Hebrew, Elohim, the word for God, Elohim bara, the word Elohim is actually plural. And the word bara is singular. And so we would have, in the beginning, the gods, plural, he created the heavens and the earth. Now, Moses was not bad at grammar, and the Holy Spirit didn't miss that in his divine inspiration. He's simply pointing out that even from the very get-go, we confess and the scriptures record 
this plurality of oneness within the Godhead, so that when God speaks to himself and says, let us make man in our own image after our likeness, Genesis chapter 1, and then the very next verse, it says, in his image, he created them, male and female, he created them. That's not inconsistency. It's not inconsistent for God to speak to himself in the plurality, the communication between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet to speak that the one God, he, created man and woman. This is mind-boggling stuff, because ultimately it goes well beyond human reason. A lot of people like to say it is irrational. It's against human reason. I think that's a mistake to say it that way. It's not against human reason. It's beyond it. And that's an important point for us to grasp, is that human reason does not get to determine ultimate truth. Human reason is not the ultimate source of truth. And we've been led to believe that since the early days of the Enlightenment, that man, by his own knowledge, if you just give him enough time, he will be able to learn and know everything about reality, including God. I would submit to you, though, that any God who can be known perfectly by his creation is less than the creation that he created. How can I perfectly know who God is and somehow be less than, if at best equal to, but how can I be more than God by knowing him completely and yet be his creation? And so there's a pride element to us as sinners to say, I should get to be able to describe the Holy Trinity and comprehend the Holy Trinity so that everything makes sense. That's not true. There are a lot of things about God that don't make sense to us, not because it's illogical or because it's a made-up story where they didn't connect the dots well enough and they're showing the falsehood of their efforts, but rather God doesn't make sense to us because we're not God. Uh, in the book of Job, remember, Job is actually chastised by God pretty severely for questioning God and his plans. And God says to Job, where were you? when I laid the foundations of the earth. And so we always should respect the reality that we're not going to be able to perfectly comprehend the Holy Trinity. Uh, we can say throughout the Old Testament that there is a plurality of oneness to be proclaimed. Think of Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then uh, that's the passage that Jesus uses in Luke, and he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. But notice all three persons of the Trinity are there, and you can find a couple other passages in the Old Testament that speak to this reality. But it really opens up, of course, with the baptism of Jesus. And this is why many people think that it's a New Testament concept, because where we see the Son, now we know who the Father is, now we have ability, if you will, by the scriptural record to see the Holy Spirit. Uh, before the Son comes, as we said a couple weeks ago, I simply cannot know the Father until I know that he has a Son. I can't call him Father until I know that he has a Son. And so a sinful man cannot comprehend God, not fully at least. And as a good reminder of this, perhaps we do well to study again the Athanasian Creed, I mentioned that earlier about how it focuses us on the incarnation, but the first half of the creed is wonderful to read and to confess on that festival of the Holy Trinity because it goes back and forth trying to capture the essence of this, 
that we can't say that the Son is the Father or the Father is the Holy Spirit. Now, there are three distinct persons is the only philosophical term we can think to use or theological term we can think to use, and yet one God. And so the Son is uncreated, the Father uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated, the Son or the Father Almighty, the Son Almighty, the Holy Spirit Almighty, and yet not three Almighties, but one Almighty. And it just almost gets confusing to read because the confessors were trying so hard to be able to say, we have to defend against all of these errors that are trying to rationalize God as either three gods or one sort of modalistic person. Uh, anyone who has gotten into some of these fringe quasi-Christian groups who aren't actually Christian, but they confess to be Christian, but they believe that God is modalistic. And uh, I actually had extended relatives that were in this group for a while who said, first God came in this form, and then he changed his mask and came in this form, and now he's changed his mask again, and now he comes in the form of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not a very proper reading of the scriptures at all. Uh, if it is, then Jesus is calling out to no one when he cries from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We have to uphold the individuality of the persons while also not dividing the unity of the triune Godhead. And this does go beyond human comprehension. We try very hard to give examples of these things that kids might uh, actually comprehend. And uh, oftentimes we use images like the apple with its peel and the fleshy fruit of it, and then the core. And we say, oh, look, just as it has three parts and it makes up one apple, so also God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Not a good explanation, to be honest, not a good illustration. If people are using it, I'd encourage them to stop, because the flesh by itself does not make up the apple, and the skin or the peel is not the apple 100%. And yet we have to say of the Trinity, and we do this in the, uh, in the Athanasian Creed and elsewhere, that the Son is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. You cannot refer to each of them as simply a part of God. You must refer to them each as God, as Lord, as we do in our confessions. So it is a mind-boggling reality when Jesus opens up to us the Holy Trinity, which is perhaps why when we get into the Creed, we focus not so much on trying to explain the persons as much as realizing that God makes himself known to us through his work, that through his work of creation and through his work of redemption and through his work of sanctification, here is how we know and see, if you will, God at work. That the festival of the Holy Trinity so often focuses us on what it means to be the baptized, because in baptism we receive all the work and all the benefits of the work of God of those who've been created and redeemed now receiving that adoption as sons into the life of the sanctified Christian or child of God. So it's a complex reality to try and explain, and that's exactly how it should be. Because if I can fully comprehend and explain the things of God, then he is less than what the heights of human reason are. And that's not a God that can by definition be God. If God can be completely understood by human reason, then he's not above human reason. He's not beyond human reason. Then the creator is better understood by the created than the created being subject to the creator. Uh, so in our human pride, we want to be able to always explain these things fully. And yet in Christian faith, 
we can rightly look at the divine mystery of the Holy Trinity and say, all glory be to God on high, knowing that we might never totally be able to explain it, and yet we can rejoice in it, that this holy, holy, holy is a God not just of glory, but also a God of love. And through the person and work of Jesus, heaven now opens to us that we can know intimately that which, apart from Christ, we can never know properly. Christ for our salvation is our entry into the Trinity. I like how in this catechesis lesson, not strictly sticking to the catechism in the way that we get it, we would start with the first article of the Creed as we confess it. But as we are giving catechetical lessons here, I like how you've brought us through Christ into our entrance into the Trinity and centered on his work of salvation. Beautiful teaching that you have there for us. That's where we're going to go ahead and wrap up this week. Next week, we'll pick up then the first and third articles, book ending that second article of Creed. But as you've laid out for us here, all the glory of God fully as we rightly confess it as well. So please join us next week as we pick up then the first and third articles of the Creed with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel, and I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith. Thank you for stopping by today, dear listener. Until next time, keep confessing, church.